turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit that you have revealed so much to us. We would know nothing except for what you tell us about yourself. We would not be able to understand ourselves. We would not be under, able to understand the world that we live in. We wouldn't be able to understand anything outside of your statement of what is true, of your statement of what is right and wrong. And we're grateful for this book where you pull back the curtain, that you can allow us to see things that are still yet to occur, that eventually your triumph over sin and over evil is completed, that you will make a new heaven and a new earth, that we will be in your presence forever with joy unspeakable, and that there is a horrible torment that awaits those who continue to rebel against you. And so, Father, help us as we study these things that we would be encouraged and emboldened to preach your word, that we would carry your gospel to the ends of the earth, that people would be able to see and come to know you for the incredible God who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last couple of weeks, we've had a chance to look at um, hermeneutics, the, the interpretive grid that we want to use as we come to this book, that we're not going to approach this book any differently than any other book in the Bible, that as we come to it, we are going to interpret it literally, that we are going to use the grammar and the syntax and the historical context in order to understand what it is that God is revealing. We've also talked about what is the purpose of revelation. And just for review, the purpose of revelation is to what? It's to uncover, it is to reveal, it is to disclose, it's, it's to take something that has previously been hidden and to make it known. And so it's not about making things confusing. That is not to say that there are not things that as we come across them that are going to be difficult. We're going to run into one today. Uh, should we get there? It's a, toward the end of the chapter, so we'll see how that goes. We also looked last week at what the, uh, who the players are in the book of Revelation. You see the church prominent in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I'm trying to remember that I think it is 17 times uh, in the book of Revelation the word church, ecclesia, is used. 16 of those occur in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It doesn't happen again until chapter 22, verse 16. And so the church is conspicuous in its absence for chapters 4 through 22. And so the, the purpose of the time of, of Revelation, when you get into the time of Jacob's trouble, when you get into the 70th week of Daniel, all of those, uh, the focus is on the nation of Israel and the redemption of the people of Israel. And so all of those promises that God has made to them in the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. 
And this book talks about that process of the people being rescued and then having a kingdom, a literal physical kingdom on this planet where God fulfills his promises to, to the people of Israel as his people. So this morning, we're going to jump into chapter one. Uh, last week, we talked about how, and we'll see this again at the end of this chapter, how God outlines the book for us. He talks about, he tells John to write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are going to happen after these things. The things that you have seen is chapter one. The things that are is chapters two and three. And the things that will happen after these things is chapters four through the end of the book in chapter 22. So let's read our chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessing, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And 
I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we can see here as John begins here with the title. This term revelation is the word from which we get apocalypse. It's kind of, uh, I guess, in the providence of God that we are beginning to actually get into the text here given the events of this week. And so when you think about apocalypse, I would imagine that if we were living, living in Kiev or Kharkiv, that we would be thinking apocalypse in the term in which our culture uses that term. When you think of apocalypse or apocalyptic, what comes to your mind? When you hear that term, destruction, war, chaos, fear, all of those things, because again, that is the way that the word tends to be used now. We need to go back and remember that that's not the way that John uses this word. In fact, it's not the way that any of the biblical authors use this word. The word apocalypse is used exactly one time in the book of Revelation in the title. Other than that, the word doesn't occur. Where you will see the, the, the idea communicated is you will see it referred to as prophecy. The idea here, the word is used a total of 19 times in the New Testament. 17 of those, it's translated revelation. Twice, it's, uh, in, it's uh, translated as revealed. The idea, again, is something that is being disclosed, something that is being made known. And this is the unveiling of Jesus in his majesty. This is the unveiling of him as no longer coming as the baby in the manger or coming as the suffering servant who's going to be crucified and hung on a cross. This is Jesus coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the owner of the earth and the judge mankind and of angels and so this is Jesus in his full deity you'll see here when Jesus was crucified buried resurrected and ascended when he got to heaven, an event occurred. And that event was the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That's not future. That's already occurred. Jesus has the name that is above every name. And the day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is future. 
the revelation is given to his bondservants. Now, bondservant is a kind word to, that describes what other term? Slave. And you could, uh, there are some slaves who were slaves by choice. You remember that under Jewish law that um, a slave could only be held for seven years. And after seven years, that slave was to be freed unless the slave chose to remain, in which case you'd take him over and you'd put the awl through the earlobe and he would become a slave forever. And that is the idea here really of, of us, that we are slaves, but we're not slaves because we're forced to be. We're slaves because we've been purchased and frankly, there's no better place to go, right? Why would you want to be released from the service of the King of Kings? And so the revelation here is given to those who are, who are going to do his will. It's given to believers. So if it is given to believers, and believers, again, uh, in the New Testament, in the church age, it, believers have something that believers in the Old Testament did not have. And what is that? The indwelling Holy Spirit, right? So what is one of the purposes of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Okay, there's comfort to guide us into all truth, to bring us to our minds all the things that Jesus has said, right? And so the idea here is that as we come to this book, we should be able to have some confidence that as we read, and as we study, we should be able to understand what it is that God has brought here to tell us. And so, um, and just to take a real quick detour here for a moment. Um, I couldn't help but notice a couple of bylines, I wouldn't call them headlines. I didn't actually read the articles. But there were a couple of words that started to show up in articles this week that you typically do not see. And I saw it a couple of times. Who are Gog and Magog? All of a sudden, that's starting to, to show up. Well, why is that? Because those are related to Russia and Asia and Europe. And so all of a sudden, now that this is starting to occur, it's stirring interest in some of these things. Now, on the one hand, that is a good thing. It is a good thing for people to come to understand that judgment is coming and it is not going to be pleasant for those who are enemies of the cross, who are enemies of God, who are rebellious. It is not going to be good. What is bad about it and what we don't want to fall prey to, we don't want to fall prey to using headlines to determine our theology. That is not good. And so, frankly, uh, you know, when it comes to Gog and Magog, they're going to have their time in history because God has given them a time in history. And as we're, as we're going through, once we start getting into chapters four and thereafter, frankly, we're not going to do a lot of trying to identify specific individuals. It's pointless, frankly. And so 
we're going to focus to concentrate. We're going to major on the majors, and we'll minor on the minors. Okay? So don't get freaked out by the stuff that's occurring. Can I tell you? And, 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 you know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know that. Just remember, in the, at the end, God wins. And whatever we happen to encounter in life, we're going to have sufficient grace to not just barely overcome, but we are going to be more than conquerors. And so it's no different than any other situation in life that we're going to encounter. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. Now, this word soon is takos, and it can mean a brief period of time, something that happens quickly, or it can mean something that happens soon. It can be something that happens in nearness of time. The idea behind this is it's stressing imminence. There are some things that we are going to be looking at here over the course of the next few months that would be biblically imminent. And again, we've talked about this before. What does imminent mean biblically? Okay, okay. Nothing else has to happen before that event. There's no, tr there's no precursor. Uh, and so the example that uh, the World Series, if you're a baseball, well, actually, there might not even be one this year. But let's just say that the World Series would go on in its normal function. Now, that would be in October of this year. Is that an imminent event? No, it's not imminent. Why not? You've got to have a regular season to figure out the two teams that are going to play in the World Series. So it's not imminent. There's going to be a worship service here at 1030. Is that imminent? Why not? You know when it's going to be. It's at 1030. Okay. There's another bullet point following on the outline. Is that imminent? That depends on how long I keep talking on this one, right? <laughs> imminent is there's nothing that has to happen to precede that event. Now, why would God stress imminence when it comes to the, the rapture, the removal of the church. Why would he want us to understand that to be something that is imminent? Oh, say it louder, Julie. We need to be ready. See, if you believe, Jesus talked about this, right? The slave who believed that his master was not going to come back for a long time. Therefore, how did that slave act? My master's gone for a long period of time. Therefore, I can kick back. In the fire department, we used to have um, recliners in the day room, and there was a term that was called locked and loaded. And you can imagine what position that was in the lazy boy. The handle was back. The feet were up. If I get in that position now, I'll be asleep in five minutes. 
because that's, that is our natural tendency if we think we've got a long time. Now, on the other hand, if you're a worker and you have a belief that the boss could enter your cubicle at any moment, what are you, what's your work life going to be like? Yeah, but you know what? Now, that was interesting. I just heard nose to the grindstone from two different people at the same time. Be because that's just it. That's just it. If I think that, you know, I might get caught, do I want to get caught doing something wrong or would I rather get caught doing something right? Right? And so the idea here, and, and this is actually a gift, our manner of life ought to reflect our belief that Jesus could show up at any moment. And so that should affect how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we act. Now this message was delivered by his angel. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now some of the stuff that we're going to be seeing here is going to be direct quotes from Jesus. There's also going to be a multitude of messengers, God's messengers, who give the word to John, who give descriptions to John, with the understanding that John is going to be writing these things down to then communicate them to the seven churches, which we'll read about here in a little bit. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ are almost synonymous. It's almost two ways of saying the same thing. And so we have um, John is testifying to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So let's talk about this now, he, things that he sees. Are we, did, as we read chapter one, did we come across symbols? Okay. I'm seeing some heads nodding. Good. I know it's nine. I know it's relatively early. And yesterday was a busy day. I am so happy to see some of you here because I know you all had long nights. What a day yesterday was. And so the idea is, is that um, when we have symbols in the book of Revelation, we have two ways, two means of figuring out what those symbols represent. Now, what happened in the last verse of this chapter? We had two of the symbols that appeared in this chapter explained to John so that he would know what it meant. And so we are often going to see in this book that when a symbol is used, it's going to be explained relatively in the same context. Now, that happens a fair amount of the time, actually. There are other times where it's not going to be explained in the immediate context, but if you're familiar with the Bible, especially with the Old Testament, then all of a sudden you're going to, wait a minute, I've read that someplace else. So, for instance, when we see this one with looking like a son of man standing among the lampstands. Does he, does the, his description sound familiar? 
if you have read the book of Daniel, then immediately you'll go to Daniel chapter 10 because that description is almost verbatim. The one big difference between Daniel chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 1 describing this individual is in Daniel, he doesn't have the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's the difference. Do I know why? No. No, it's a good question. It's a good question. And it's, um, and the only thing that I would, I would say that I don't understand why that didn't happen back in Daniel's day. I can see why it happens in Revelation because it ties directly to chapter 19. And so in, inside the book, inside Revelation itself, you can see the tie between chapter 1 and chapter 19. It's a little more difficult when we go back to Daniel because, frankly, it's not exactly clear in Daniel if, if we're talking about Jesus or if we're talking about an angel. That's the difficulty in Daniel. Okay, the, the question is, are there going to be some aha moments between Daniel and, and when we go through Revelation? Yes, there are. And so again, the idea of Revelation to a great degree is we're, we're looking at threads that have begun back in Genesis, all the way back to Genesis, and have carried through the major, the minor prophets, and now they carry through and we get to see the end picture in Revelation. Now we see something here, and in fact, have you ever heard the statement that there is a blessing for simply reading this book? Good, you need to flush that, okay? I want you, I, I'm finding that as I get older, I need to have a little handle here on the side of my head, and when stuff gets in there that it doesn't need to be there anymore, I pull it down and it leaves. All right? That's one of them that you need to get rid of. In fact, let's read that. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. So, where's the blessing? Those who do those who heed. It's, it's stated much more succinctly at the end of the book. Now, you'll notice that it says, he who reads. He is singular or plural? It is singular. Those who hear, singular or plural? Plural. Heed, you can't tell. I will tell you because in the Greek it's, it is apparent. Heed is plural. Now, you look at, we look at that and we go, why? That is because you and I live in an age where we all have a copy of God's word in our hand. In fact, how many of us have more than one Bible? I would say that probably just about everybody in this room has more than one. That was not the case in the first century. It was not, it was not a cheap 
to make copies. And so often you would have a copy of God's word in any particular uh, synagogue or church. And then you would have somebody who would read. That's why you see with Timothy, you know, continue in your reading, the public proclamation of God's word. The idea again being that you have a person because there's only one copy. So you have a person who reads and then you have everybody else who is listening. What's the purpose of reading the word? That's right. There is no benefit, none. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir. No benefit to hearing God's word and having it come in and even having it stay if it doesn't reflect in a change of attitude and a change of behavior. I've got a couple of references there for you. Um, you can look at Luke 20, 11, 28, James 1, 22. Uh, Revelation 22, 7 is where it's actually repeated here in this book. We've got seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And, second, and beatitude, uh, when we think of Matthew, when we think of the beatitudes, how do the beatitudes start? Blessed, right? Blessed is the man. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. There are seven of those statements in the book of Revelation. And I've got them listed out there for you. You can look, you can look those up. Reading, hearing, and heeding are all in the present tense. Now, again, Greek present tense. What does that mean? Continuous action. This is not a one-time thing. This is a manner of life. And when it comes to time, we have uh, heeding the words that are written in it, for the time is near. Time here, there's two words for time. There's chronos, which is talking about, uh, you know, the actual progression of time. And then there's kairos, and kairos re refers to epochs, seasons, uh, blocks of time. And again, the idea that the time is near, it's imminent. And so this, we're talking about something that is in the process. In fact, uh, uh, later on we'll see that this is something where this is in process. And so this is something, it's a moving, this, 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 this train's already moving. The question is when it gets to the station here. That's, that's the question in hand. So John's the author. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is interesting. These seven churches, uh, apparently, Asia Minor was split up into seven uh, postal districts for the dissemination of information. And these churches are in cities. They're, large, they're key cities in these postal districts. So what's the idea? We're sending the message to a place to where it's going to be able to get out to others as um, it's, you know, it's like sending it to West Sacramento. If, you, if, if you're doing something with the Postal Service, the nearest big distribution center here is in West Sacramento. And that you're going to go through. If you talk about uh, shipping something by UPS, what does UPS have around the country? They've got hubs, right? Stuff goes over to the hub and then it gets distributed out. 
And so chapter, verses 4 to 8, we've got the salutation. So John is the author, and you have a standard greeting right here, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace being God's attitude toward us. Peace being our standing before him and our own experience. And so remember that you have peace, we have peace with God because we've been redeemed and our sins have been forgiven. So we have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, you are therefore for able to experience what? The peace of God. You gotta have one before the other. One thing that is a little different here is that who is, uh, who is sending this message? John's the author, but who's actually sending the message? It's the whole Trinity. It's, it's, it, they're all involved here. So you have it's from him who is and who was and who is to come, referencing God the Father. You have, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, this is a little strange. We're not used to hearing the Holy Spirit re referred to this way. We just ran into a number, and it's a number that is a loaded number. What's the number? Seven. So when you hear seven, biblically, what is one of the things that, you, that should trigger up in the back of your mind when you hear seven? That is, that's an issue of completeness. And so the seven spirits, that's because there's no place where you can hide from the Spirit of God. That's the idea of that. We're going to run into seven a lot in this book. There are seven years. There are seven um, seals. There are seven trumpet judgments. There are seven bowls of judgment. So it's going to show up a lot. And from Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is placed here last which is kind of unusual, isn't it? Because normally you see you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. In Greek, oftentimes what you'll end up with is that you'll either have something placed first for emphasis, and where's the other place that you'll get it for emphasis? At the end. And so here we have Jesus listed at the end, and he is listed here as prophet, priest, and king. He's the faithful witness. Faith, now, witness is the word from which we get our word, martyr. And the idea behind that is the faithful witness, this is one who is proclaiming. Witnesses, in, biblically, are never silent. It's all about proclamation. Witnesses, in the biblical sense, are never silent. They're, they're, they are proclaiming. And the idea of proclaiming truth would fall into which office? Think old, think old Testament. That's your prophet. The prophet is the one who proclaimed God's word to people. Then you had another office, and that office was the office of priest. And what would a priest do? The priest represented people to God. And here's where we have, he's the firstborn of the dead. Jesus experienced death. Now this idea of being firstborn, was Jesus the first person raised from the dead? No. No, there was a, there was a number of those people in the Old Testament. Prototokos has the idea of being preeminent. 
Now, there is a sense in which Jesus is chronologically the firstborn from the dead. If you think about it, what did Jesus receive on his ascension? What did, what did he have after his resurrection? He's got a new body. Nobody else has one of those yet. Old Testament saints aren't going to get their new bodies until after the first resurrection, and we're not going to get to that until chapter 20. We will have ours, but we die after him. And so the idea about Jesus having his glorified body, he is the first to have that. And so in that sense, he really is the firstborn from the dead and not just the preeminent. What was the purpose of his death? How was Jesus a priest in his death? Okay, he, he's offering the atonement, but he's all, he also is the atonement, right? And so that makes him the mediator, right? He's the one. <laughs> he's the one who can stand between God the Father and man. And he's the advocate. He's the mediator. It's through his blood. It's through his stripes that we're healed. And so he acts in the priest, in a priest in that way. And then thirdly, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He rules the kings of the earth now. There's nothing that's outside of his control. So what's happening over in Russia, in, in Ukraine right now, that is not outside of God's control. That is accomplishing God's purposes. Now, do we understand fully what all of those purposes are right now at this moment? No. But we know who does. So the book comes from the Trinity, from the entire Godhead. And then there's actually a benediction to him who loves us. Notice loves us is what tense? Present tense, okay? He loves us now. How did he demonstrate that love? Well, that's in the past. He loves us currently he released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. There's another word that we're going to follow through the book. It's used 25 times in this book. What does behold mean? What's it used for? First, it would probably help if I didn't say it the way in which it's meant to be read. How would it be meant to be heard? Behold! 
Sorry to wake you up. <laughs> That's the intent of that word. It is to get our attention. There's something special coming next. And there is something coming special next. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now, how many of you have caps, all caps there where it says, behold, he's coming with the clouds? Pretty much everybody, right? You don't have it in caps? Is it italicized or somehow set out from the other text? Okay. Okay. Why would it be in caps? Because it's referring back directly to the Old Testament. This is where we're going back to grab onto. So, for instance, uh, keep your finger in Revelation, and let's go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13. Daniel 7, 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, <laughs> with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There is a direct tie He's going back and he's grabbing a thread from back in Daniel and he is carrying it through here and saying, here is where this is leading to. Now, when it talks about he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, where else is that going? The idea that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's Zechariah. That's Zechariah 12.10. And so here he is, he's, he's grabbing threads. Now, I do not, I do not knit, I do not crochet. I, I don't do any of those things. But my understanding is, is that you can take those and you can take different things and you can somehow connect them together in order to weave them through into something else that looks entirely awesome. That's what's happening here. He's grabbing threads. So again, the idea behind this is, and the reason for bringing this up now is that as we're looking back, we see all kinds of threads that are in the Old Testament which are not necessarily connected together in the Old Testament. But as, as time has gone by, now we can see how these begin to fit together in God's plan. And that's where Revelation is coming in. Revelation is tying together all of those different threads. And there, I listed here a number of, of verses for you where it talks about clouds. If there was a thick cloud around Israel in the Old Testament, who was in the neighborhood? God was, right? And remember, and, and, and th those pictures, it's not even subtle, right? When they're in the wilderness, what's around? At night, pillar of fire. 
during the day, the cloud, when the cloud got up and moved, they got up and moved. If the cloud stayed, they stayed. Because the cloud was the representation of the presence of God. What happened in the tabernacle when God moved in? The Shekinah, right? The thick cloud. Sometimes so thick, people couldn't see to do their work because God's there. In the temple, what did they have? Again, the Shekinah. On Mount Sinai, what was showing up? Clouds. People can't see Moses up there on the mountain. And in fact, how did the people feel about Moses being up on the mountain? You go. We're too scared. God's there. And so this whole idea, what received Jesus in the ascension? He goes up into a cloud. And what was the promise given by the angels right thereafter? Just as you saw him leave, just so you're going to see him come back. So again, you start to see how these threads are coming through. And here we're, we're going through. Now, when you see the idea of Jesus coming back in the clouds where nobody is going to be able to miss it, and every eye is going to see him, which return is that referring to? That is the second coming. That's the one that everybody's going to know. Nobody's going to be able to miss. You're going to have, you're going to have the great signs in heaven. Uh, you're going to have all kinds of stuff going on to where it is going to have everybody's attention. The rapture is not like that. Because in the rapture, who's that for? Is that for everybody? No. It's for those that are his own. And so that's not going to be uh, broadcast on CNN. Trust me, CNN will be able to broadcast the second coming because everybody's going to be able to see it. Every eye will see him. When it goes back to, Reve to Zechariah 12, Zechariah 12, all right, let's, I mean, just make it as basic as we can. Who is Zechariah? Ethnically. He was a Jew. And he was a prophet. Who was he prophesying to? Jews. Right? And the idea of uh, Zechariah uh, preaching back in, I believe, the six, no, no, no. Um, he would be in the 500s BC. So 500 years before Jesus. He is prophesying about how Jesus is going to be pierced. And so then you have the crucifixion. And so can you see how, I mean, what is happening with national Israel now? They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It's not him. But at some point, they're going to come to realize that, oh, the one that we rejected, the one that we crucified, the one that we nailed and pierced, he's the one. And they're going to mourn for him as an only son because all the, the weight of the realization as to what they did. Because remember, uh, it was the nation rejected him, right? 
we will not have this man to rule over us. The Pharisees rejected him, the spiritual leaders rejected him, and they got the people to do the same. But the day is going to come when all of a sudden they're going to see, oh, now we understand. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, as you just read that, what do you get the impression of when it comes to the tribes of the earth? Are they coming to repentance? You have to understand, we got to go back and look at what the word mourn is. The word that's used here for mourn is kopto, and it means to cut. It's the idea of mutilation. Now, does that bring any pictures, Old Testament pictures, to your mind? Say it louder. Mount Carmel. Who was doing the cutting? The prophets of Baal, right? What was that idea of cutting yourself? Yeah, I'm trying to get God's attention. Because he can't just hear me when I talk. Yeah, and so I'm going to be slicing myself up because I want to be able to get God's attention. That's the word that's used here for mourn. And so it's actually talking about the pagans trying to appeal to their own deities rather than repenting and turning to God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega being, I'm, I'm the beginning and I am the end, that talks about his omniscience. You can't slip anything past God. You can't fool him. You can't surprise him. You can't somehow do something that is hidden from him. Who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, that's his omnipresence. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And so there's no time when God's out of the picture to where somehow, again, he's unaware. The Almighty, this is such a cool word. The Almighty, he is the one who is all-powerful. This is his, omnis his uh, omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And so he's all-knowing, he's everywhere, he's all-powerful. So who can take him on? No one. No one. That's why he has no equal. He has no rival. Did he create all knowledge? Yes. But omniscience in the sense that he possesses all knowledge. He, God not only knows what is going to happen, he knows why it's going to happen and all of the different things that funnel into that. All of that. And so there's nothing. That's why when you have something like the uh, several years ago, there was a, a new uh, idea that came out. It was called the openness of God, which was somehow God knew everything, but he doesn't know decisions that people are going to make. And it's like, how? no, that's not true. Oh, Don, Don, I know. Okay, now, I'm pretty sure you said that as a joke. How could God not know everything? 
I'll tell you how. So, for instance, if God doesn't know everything, then how would he be able to, when he's having the discussion about paying the temple tax with Peter? You know, they came, the, the Pharisees came along, you know, is it right to pay the, the poll tax, the, the temple tax? And Jesus comes back and says, you know, well, who's in, you know, here's the, here's the coin, whose inscription, you render to Caesar what's Caesar's, you render to God with what's God. And then he looks at Peter, and Peter's been having a little bit of an issue with that. And so he tells Peter, listen, go fishing. The first fish you catch, open its mouth, and inside there's going to be a piece of money that'll be enough to pay for you and for me. Now that sounds to me like deity. How else would he know that? How else would he have power over a fish and what that fish has been sucking up off the bottom? And again, if you think about that, if God knows that about fish, then he knows everything he needs to know about me and my circumstances. So when I'm praying to God, about something, I'm not informing him about anything, right? I'm sorry? Before the foundation of the earth. You know, and by the way, uh, I meant to say this last week. There's another very practical reason when you go through and you look at uh, whether or not God is going to fulfill his promises to Israel. You see, if Israel can sin their way out of the promises that God made to them unilaterally, if Israel can sin their way out, then what hope do I have? If, if Israel can sin their way out from God's promises to them, then how in the world can I believe that he'll, be, that he'll fulfill his promises to me? Because frankly, I'm worse than them. And I'm worse for them than them because I have the indwelling Holy Spirit that they never had. And I have the word of God in my hand that they didn't have. You could get it at the synagogue. You could get it at the temple. But you didn't have it at home. I have that. And I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The only way that I can be faith, that I can be confident in knowing that God will fulfill his promises to me is he's going to fulfill his promises to them. Questions. You might as well ask him if you got them. We've got five minutes left, and I really don't want to try to tackle half a page in five minutes. That's not going to go well. They can't. Okay, so the reason... Okay, so here, here's the reason that that issue comes up. There is a significant portion of Christianity that holds that the church is taking Israel's place when it comes to the promises of God. And so, and the, and the reason that is most often offered for that is that Israel's sin in rejecting 
their Messiah. And so their opportunity came and passed. And it was, uh, frankly, and I can see how somebody might think that when you have uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, you have the Bar Kopka Rebellion in 135 where the Romans throw every Jew out of Israel and they rename the place. Um, and then there is no Israel for centuries. I can see how, you know, people would come to the conclusion that, you know, God must have set them aside. But what have we lived long enough in our day to be able to see? Yeah, there's a nation. There's a nation. And, uh, pardon me? No, he's not. You know, no. In fact, I, I think I've told you all before, um, when Sean and we went, Carol and I went with Sean and Juliet to Israel in, in 2013, and uh, we saw, you know, there's a huge menorah that was in the uh, menorah candle stand that was in the temple. It's all gold. We saw it. It was being moved. It was actually on the street. We, were, we saw it being moved. It's, it's, I think it was taller than me and, and broad. And we look at that. That's for the temple. Apparently, one of the other things that we were told is that there is heavy equipment staged today, now, in the event that something bad were to happen to the Dome of the Rock, you know, to where somehow it just happened to ultimately to, to end up being destroyed, they can have an altar built in four hours. They can have debris cleared and an altar built and be sacrificing in four hours. There was a, a, a place there, um, the high priest, the high priest uh, tunic, the ephod and all of that, um, it's in a display counter in a building in the old city. And so there's a number of things that are done. They're ready. And I imagine they've been doing DNA tests so that they know who's who from who. And so, again, that, you know, it would not take long for all of a sudden a new temple to be being built. That means they've got stuff stockpiled, they've got the equipment ready, and all they're waiting for is some misfortune to occur to the Dome of the Rock, which is built on the site of where the, the temple used to be. If you, if you take a tour, there's a tour that'll take you under the Wailing Wall on the west side of, of, the, of Temple Mount. As you wind your way through, there is a place there's an offset that goes over to one side. They have calculated that that is the nearest they can get to where the Holy of Holies used to be so that they can pray there because that's as near to, you know, where God used to be. Laura. The 
idea, the idea was is that the original temple was, they knew where that was. Because again, the Holy of Holies, as I understand it, was actually set over the place where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And so that spot is where the Holy of Holies was. And the second temple was put back in that location. And then second temple, the one built by Zerubbabel, when the Babylonian, when they came back from the Babylonian exile, then Herod the Great took that temple and expanded it. And so that's where you got the Tower of Antonia and all those other places, and his residence was right next to it. And so he ended up making it big and, you know, bigger, bigger and better. You know, if you want to talk about build, build back better, that was Herod's remodel of the second temple. And so, which dwarfed Solomon's. And so, again, they know where that, that place was. That was the reason the Muslims put the Dome of the Rock there. That was why. Yeah, I, I, that would be uh, interesting to see. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. And so the idea being is that um, if you go back into Daniel, um, where it talks about 70 weeks are apportioned for, for your people, and you've got seven weeks, then you've got 62 weeks, and then you've got the 70th, um, that 70th week is the time of Jacob's trouble. So in Daniel, it's the 70th week of Daniel. In Jeremiah, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's talking about a specific seven-year period where the first three and a half years, there's going to be general peace as far as Israel is concerned. There's going to be other stuff going on on the planet. But as far as Israel is concerned and their relations with the Antichrist, that's going to be fairly stable. And then at the midpoint, that's going to change. And in the second half, that is going to be ugly. Um, so it's not necessary that uh, the, the, um, the sacrifices themselves trigger that. That's not going to be the trigger. The trigger is going to be the, the Antichrist showing up and establishing his power. That's going to be, that'll be the trigger. But the, the sacrifices will already be happening. Now, we're going to talk about the rapture in between chapters 3 and 4. That's the natural, I think that's the natural place to put them because that's when it's going to happen. We'll be there. Um, and one of the things that we'll talk about is that there's not, it's not uh, necessary that the rapture happens today, meaning that the tribulation starts tomorrow. That's not true. Any more so than, uh, honestly, um, Events that were that were talked about by Isaiah in Isaiah 61, where he talks about, um, you know, Jesus coming to proclaim truth and to and to do all of those things. He see, Isaiah saw the first coming and the second. He didn't see two comings. He saw one. And so for us, it's not necessary that that be uh, immediately thereafter. There can be a break of some time. Those are good questions. Any others?
because now we're over time, but that's okay. That is my understanding that it was on top of Mount Moriah, and that is where Temple Mount was, was on, on top of Mount Moriah. So, <laughs> that is my understanding. Okay. Well, you know, and actually, uh, that's not an unusual response. Because what do you see? What is often the response of man to an angel? They're on their face. And, and in fact, John, in this book, twice, is going to be on his face in front of an angel worshiping. And the angel is going to say, don't do that. So again, but the, the idea is, is that Angels, you don't mess with angels. You don't mess with angels. You know, the angel? No, no. The death angel took out the equivalent of the United States Marine Corps in one night. And Jesus said he could ask for 12 legions. What are you going to do with 12 legions when you just need one? And a legion was how many? Uh, 600 on a low end. It was actually a range. It was anywhere from 600 to 1,000. 12,000 angels. Man, I don't even want to try to take on one. He can, he can have five of his six wings tied behind his back. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the riches of your word. We didn't get as far as I had hoped today. And yet, we skimmed over so much. Thank you that you would pay attention to every detail. There's nothing that escapes you. As we were looking, if you know that about a fish, then you know everything there is you know the number of hairs on our heads. You know what we think before we even know how to think it. The word that's going to come off of my tongue, you knew it before I even thought to frame it. And as David said, we can't hide from you. There's nowhere where we can go that is away from you. And for an unbeliever, that would be terrifying but oh, how comforting it is for us. We can never be alone, ever.
because you're there. And not only are you physically there, you're for us. So who can be against us? Father, thank you that there are times when evil seems to be rampant. And we have seen that in our country here in in the last months. We're seeing it now in Asia. Evil seems to be able to run unrestrained. Father, help us to remember that that is flat, just not the case. All of these things that are happening are happening by your will. You're accomplishing your purposes. Father, help us to trust you in that, whether that be internationally, whether that be here, as we encounter and struggle often with the situations of life. Father, help us to do that with great confidence in you, not in us, in you, because you're powerful, and what you want to accomplish happens in us, in anybody else. Father, thank you for saving us, for redeeming us, for adopting us. Your son and your son alone is worthy. And yet you have made us to be joint heirs with him. We are blessed beyond anything that we can imagine. be filled with gratitude to you and may we serve you with everything that we have and worship you with all of our being you deserve nothing less help us now as we come to worship you together in the service that's to come may we bring a smile to your face in Jesus name